usually in our teens, early teens, mid-teens, that we start to think that, or we start to question the rules. We start to think that, well, wait a minute. You know, why are all these rules on me? Why should I follow them? Who made these rules? You know, um, where, where do my parents get off? It, generally, what I mean here is the universal rules that everybody lives by, uh, that most of the people in the world live by. If you're brought up in a Christian home, then there's more rules. There's the general worldly rules, like don't steal that and do your homework and clean your room and brush your teeth. And then there's the biblical rules, and then you just, oh, we do the same thing. And as it's at some point in our lives, we start to question the rules, and then we think, well, where does the Bible get off, you know, telling me what to do? If you're brought up in an abusive home uh, with guardians or parents who are amoral, uh, then uh, you actually probably longed for rules that uh, others had, but you didn't. But then comes that same time when you're a teenager and you start to think, well, probably that maybe you're lucky that you don't have any rules. But then you see the others, you're meaning your guardians and parents. It didn't work out for them all that well. People who live amorally uh, have terrible lives eventually. And you start to see that. And so all of this comes down to the conduct of a human being what it is that we're supposed to do, what you ought to do and what you, you ought not do. And it turns out that all of it, even, even the common stuff that everybody's supposed to do just to get along, uh, comes from God, that God is the source of all good things. And that is called righteousness. It is the, the what is done and done rightly. So righteousness is, not, is two things. Righteousness is the right thing to do and knowing it. And then the second thing is doing it. So you know what's right and you do what's right. <clears throat> God says in his word that righteousness is intrinsic to him. That's a fancy way of saying it's a part of his nature. So in other words, it's not arbitrary. So when we ask, why should I do that? It's because the creator of the universe does that then now as Christians, as believers, we say, well, why should I do that? Why is God so restrictive to me or what I want to do? It is because there is one way that is right, and it's intrinsic. It's not made up by God. It's not arbitrarily made up. There's a right way and a wrong way. And the key to our study, uh, which really, I should say, the key to wanting and loving righteousness is understanding what we're studying now. And it will really set you free. So it's, it's not a process. It's this We're afraid of it. Uh, we're afraid of this holiness, right? God wants us to do things that we don't want to do. And we're afraid that we're going to lose out. We're afraid of God. We're afraid it's going to happen. And uh, the, the solution there is not working to try and live up to it. The solution is finding out why. Why is it right? And when you find the answer to that, which God provides, you'll love to do it. And it'll change your life. So we're going to, again, Matthew 3, before we run off to Romans. And today we're going to focus on a passage in Romans, but we've got to start where we start. Romans, uh, sorry, Matthew 3. Let's open up in prayer and be grateful.
thankful for all that God has provided for us here. We can do what we do here because, not just here, but I mean in the scripture, uh, because Christ has died for us. And so because of his great grace and mercy, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for um, our place here. We have a church where we can gather and hear your word. We thank you for all those online who uh, listen as well and that continue to um, support us and fellowship with us, pray for us as we pray for them. And our grateful Father, all of us, that you have made us all a part of your family eternally through the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We know, Father, that we are baptized by the Holy Spirit because Christ was baptized by all of our sins. And so he has paid the price. He has redeemed us and reconciled us to you. We're so grateful, Father, for what the sacrifice that you have done, most incredibly done, and by the Spirit within us, we know with confidence that we are your children and that we are heirs. And therefore, Father, we ask that through that same Spirit, we ask that you enlighten our hearts concerning what all that means to us now as we live out our day-to-day lives. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the uh, idea, really idea number one, we're not going to look at idea number two, not, not yet, um, Idea number two is the fact that those who reject Christ are going to be judged eternally. Uh, we're focusing here on this part, which is Jesus baptizes. In Matthew 3:11 through 12, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit in order to gather his grain into the barn. The barn is the kingdom of heaven. The grain are his saints. Every one of us is here. The image is used of a grain or a grain of wheat. Uh, This is in the parable of the wheat and the tares. It's also in John's gospel. Christ elaborates on this in in terms of him him being a seed that goes into the ground and dies. Uh, And as we've seen in our passage here that when he died, we died. And so that's a significant passage uh, in John chapter 12 where Christ speaks of himself as a seed, and if he dies, if a seed dies in the ground, it bears fruit. And that death, thankfully, has become our death, which we see again today. We saw yesterday. So John said in 3.11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to remove his sandals or to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We could spend uh, time here on the fire part. We'll, we'll get to that eventually. I, I want to focus here because the, the, the concentration here, especially of us as believers, believers, is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we're dealing with now. Um, <clears throat> and so we've seen Galatians 3, Galatians 3.27 The baptism of the Holy Spirit makes you a son of God or a daughter of God and you're clothed with Christ. Now, this baptism happens at the moment of salvation when you believe in Christ as your Savior. By faith and faith alone. You believe in Christ as your Savior. If you've done that, 
You didn't feel it. It wasn't a second blessing. It wasn't some emotional rush. It, it's not that. It is a fact that we have to believe by faith. And so um, faith is a key word here, as it is in all doctrines. And faith here would relate to us that we have to trust that this has happened to us. And uh, God the Holy Spirit is going to help you with that, to trust him. And to trust that this has occurred, when it occurred, is when you believed in Christ as your Savior. And so when that happened, you were crucified with Christ. Well, first, let's go to Galatians 3. We looked at on Sunday that you were made a son or a daughter, and you're clothed with Christ. That's permanent. It's eternal. In uh, Colossians 2, we're crucified with Christ or buried with him. And if we're buried with him, we're also made alive with him. And so we're baptized into his death and baptized into his resurrection. And so in our next passage, that's what we see yet again. So in Romans chapter 6 is the same statement, roughly, uh, that Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2. What's significant in Romans 6, which is a little, we, we looked at a little bit, uh, yesterday in, in Colossians. Colossians in, in chapter 3, uh, after stating that we've been baptized with Christ into his death, into his life, his resurrection life, that our sins have been completely forgiven on the cross. And Colossians 2 is that wonderful passage, that, that certificate of debt that, that consisted of decrees, your sins against God has been nailed to the cross and taken out of the way. It's beautiful. So we're completely forgiven. And then Colossians 3 rolls into, well, now that this is true, consider the members of your body as dead to immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so on. Idolatry, he ends the list with, which we saw that yesterday. Uh, And so here, but in Romans, uh, the word righteous is going to be used. The baptism of the Spirit which enters us into union with the death and resurrection of Christ, has a purpose. And, you know, it's stated in Colossians, as I said. It's also stated in Galatians. In fact, it's stated everywhere. But we are called to live righteously. In Ephesians 1, holy and blameless. And holiness is righteousness. And righteousness uh, has, as I said at the start, uh, an an understanding of what is right, and also an understanding of how to do it. So both are included. I could know all about righteousness and not live it. And that is useless, absolutely useless. Uh, To live unrighteously is to put death into yourself. And I mean that in terms of what you think, what you take into your ears, what you take into your eyes, what you put into your mouth, right? Anything that you can put into yourself and, and your own thoughts, which is also an input but an output. As Christ said, what comes out of the man is what is the man, what's in the heart of man. And so as we, as we bring into ourselves things that are unrighteous, what we're putting ourselves through is a death. Uh, and so as I said yesterday, People work during the day for a living and say, I'm working for a living. 
And I work during the day for a living so that I can give myself the things that cause death. And <clears throat> the Bible uses this in terms of the imagery of drunkenness. And in some cases, it doesn't mean actual drunkenness. The Bible is speaking about the fact that you're not thinking or, in fact, soberly thinking. Uh, the, the Bible uses the imagery of darkness and night for this kind of behavior. And so as, you know, as Paul says, those who get drunk get drunk at night, what he's talking about there is that they have a certain life in the daytime that is a projection that is not really them. And then there's another life at night which they go to. And so they're living so that they can go die. And that's the image, right? And it's an incredibly foolish uh, conundrum that the human race is completely caught up in. This doctrine, you know, what Christ did for us is to set us free from that, to bring us out from the world. But he's not saying, in, a, in, a, in effect, come from where you are to my world. He says, no, I'm going to go to your world, kill you, and you go into the tomb with me, and then you and I walk out resurrected together. And that happens at the moment of salvation. So as Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you're all sons of light and sons of day. All of you. And this means all believers. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. In the context here he's using, that the, the context actually is the coming of Christ that we're to be prepared for. When Christ comes, the world ain't going to be prepared for him. Uh, and we are to be, and, and we're actually prepared for this all the time. Because as children of the light, we walk in the light. Why am I a child of light? Because I've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. So the question becomes then, as I said prior, why is it important to live righteously? And the reason being is because righteousness is the way of the new life in Christ. And Christ did something here. Christ went through great lengths to give us this life. Correct. Christ, Son of God, becomes a man. That in itself is incredible in terms of a change in which he leaves heaven. I know in his deity is omnipotent, omnipresent, I should say, and there's all, you know, hard to figure this out. But Christ becomes a man, and as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, he who was rich became poor. He becomes an infant born of a virgin. And then he goes through all kinds of, uh, he's neglected, he's mocked, he puts himself through all of this, and he allows himself to, to be treated as he is, which is not well, deserted by all those he loves, and then nailed to a cross for the sins of the whole world. And the physical suffering of the cross is in itself something that none of us would even want, an inch, uh, uh, even a little bit. But uh, the, the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That pain of being judged for the sins of the world, something we cannot imagine. Uh, so the, um, the length that he went through to make us righteous. 
Now, I don't mean that in terms of as some people uh, uh, interpret that as, well, since it costs Christ a lot, you better earn it. You know, you should feel guilty. And in a way, it's on the on a level of shame, you know, and you know, and a shame culture is we expected more from you. And people use the sacrifice of Christ as in a kind of a shame way. Christ went through a lot for you. You better shape up. Uh, I don't see it that way, though. I, I I say that definitely the what Christ did and how he did it should have its impact on us, but to us we should see how important this is. If God would go through what he went through to give us righteousness and to give us a life that could be lived in righteousness, how important is it? See, and that's not guilting me. That's saying, well, do you realize how this is so important to you that anything else is absolutely foolish? Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 6. And the way is the paths of righteousness. Righteousness is the character of being right or being just. In older English, it was spelled right-wiseness. Right-wiseness. And right-wiseness means, and it's actually better, right-wiseness means that I'm right and I'm wise enough to know how to execute rightness. You know what I mean? Because being righteous could mean two different things to two different situations. Being righteous could mean speaking at one point and being quiet at another. Being righteous could mean doing one thing and yet doing another thing in another situation. So in other words, I have the wisdom as well as the knowledge to be righteous and live righteously. So living righteously is almost like justice. In fact, quite like it. Being just towards others. It is knowing the right thing to do and then going about doing the right thing in the right way. For God, it's intrinsic. I mean, it's, it's of his nature. Throughout the Bible, throughout history, God has displayed his righteousness constantly. His greatest act of righteousness, to us at least, is the sal- our salvation through the death of Christ. In Romans 3, 25 and 26, it says that God demonstrated his righteousness by giving us his son. He demonstrated his righteousness by sacrificing his son. You know, and so God's righteousness is displayed in sometimes in judgment. But in that case, it's judgment upon his son. And this righteousness... God has given us to live in. And for a lot of us, it's a scary thing to be righteous, right? I mean, why is it scary? It's because my flesh doesn't want to do it. If we're honest with ourselves, we're pretty fearful of God's holiness. Now, holiness is righteousness and justice combined. Holiness is that God is separated from all things that are evil and sinful. He does every, everything right, and he does it always in the right way. Holiness is pure, and it has to condemn sin. And so we as sinners who are very used to compromise, we want God to compromise. And this is very prevalent. It has always been throughout the church. 
and in Israel too. You know, we get that attitude of, come on, God, give me a break. <laughs> and in grace, however, God does give you, gives us such a break. And in his mercy, he's very patient. In his grace, he doesn't blast us with his wrath when we expect that he would or should. But God is unbending when it comes to righteousness. And of course, he has to be. I don't say he has to be. We should just say that he is. And so it's in here that we find some of our greatest struggles as Christians. The fight between, as Paul relates so wonderfully, there's a war going on in my soul. The flesh and the spirit. They war with each other. And there's this promise. If I live by the spirit, walk by the spirit, I won't carry out the desires of the flesh. And I don't have to be alive too long. You know, I get out of that young teenager stage and figure out, you know, this rebellious living is, is terrible. Rebellious living only ends up in, in hurt and pain and loss. And, uh, you know, so how do I get to the righteous side? And we struggle with this. And then on top of that, this is one of the last things. There's one more line in Revelation that the Lord says. But this, notice, Revelation 22:12. All throughout the Bible, this is pro- proclaimed by God that he's going to judge us for our works. Revelation 22:12. he says, Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. Uh, that In the New American Standard, what he has done is a little softer than in the literally in the Greek. It says to render to every man according or as are his works. It's ergons here, and ergons are works. We're going to be judged for our works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be judged, recompensed for our works, whether good or bad. And if you don't have a bit of, I don't know, consternation or fear, I say fear in the right way, concerning this. In fact, and Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. In 5.11, he says, we all know the fear of God. We all know the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> so how do we reconcile this struggle? Well, if it's me, if I say, all right, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'm going to try harder. Well, I'm sure you've tried it. I've tried it multiple times. It's a loser's game because I never accomplish it by my own will, by my own strength. It's not going to happen. The key is the baptism of the Spirit. Now, there's other doctrines that are involved here, but when I say the key is the baptism of the Spirit, I want to focus on what we're studying, but I really uh, emphasize that the key is what happened to you at salvation. And that, again, all that God has given you at salvation, none of it is withheld And though we don't understand it, it's all there. I mean, it's like having billions of dollars in the bank and you don't know it's there. But as your understanding increases, the the, um, vision of what you possess becomes more clear. 
it becomes more uh, tangible and my trust in God increases, my faith increases. The, whole, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the path to freedom. Away from this constant tension. Am I enough? This constant struggle between my unrighteousness and my, if I have it, righteous. And I mean works. Between what we want to do and what we ought to do. And it's a key to the life of good works. Because the only way... And don't forget, you're going to be judged for him. The only way that, as he says here in Revelation 22, 12, that you are going to have a life where you stand before him and he says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, well done, is that you love to do the good works. You have to love them. You know, this struggle to do what I ought to do, but I really wish I could do something else, is not going to produce a life of works. And in fact, you may have zero. Because your motivation is never right. We've got to learn to love it. And how are we going to learn to love it? Coming to fully understand doctrines like this. Something supernatural happened to me at the moment I believed in Christ. Something incredible happened to me. A change, a new birth. And that is the key. The key is understanding the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All that you were blessed with by being baptized by the Spirit is yours eternally. Your understanding just opens up your eyes to it. God doesn't add as our understanding increases. God more or less rejoices as our understanding increases because we're seeing more of what he's done. So understanding the baptism of the Spirit gives us the faith to know that what we want to do And what we ought to do are actually the same thing. Can you imagine such a life? When what you ought to do, thus says the Lord, what you ought to do and what you want to do are one and the same. Now, let me give you an example. Because uh, as we said, you know, the work of Christ is often used as a shame tactic. In other words... Um, you know, look what he did for you. Now, suck it up and get get right, right? You see how much it cost him. Now, don't waste it, that kind of thing. There are some moderns, I call them moderns, but this uh, idea has been around for a while, that, uh, that the work of Christ, they teach this, that the work of Christ, including all the works of Christ, including the cross, was not so much a supernatural way of atoning for our sins, although they'll say that he did atone for our sins, but the main purpose of Christ on the cross was to show us the way that we should be, and when we look at Christ on the cross through the Gospels, that we're inspired by him to be what he wants us to be. So, In other words, I see him as my example, and then I'm motivated to be like him. So he goes before me. He shows shows his incredible love and sacrifice at the cross. I see that. I'm so inspired by it that I know, you know what, I need to be sacrificial and loving. And I don't doubt that this does work 
to motivate people. But you could have all the motivation in the world. If you're not made brand new, you have no hope at this. What is, to me, terrible, there's some aspects to this theory that are good. It has some good things to it. In other words, yes, you and I should be inspired by the life that Christ lived. We'll see it in this gospel. It's incredibly inspiring. We should be inspired by the sacrifice of love on the cross. I mean, God's love is depicted fully on the cross. But to leave out the fact that through his cross, when I believed upon him, something very real, tangible, and supernatural changed me. And that's what that theory leaves out. If it's just me seeing an amazing event or amazing work that motivates me without the actual change that baptism of the Spirit uh, enacts upon me, then I have no hope. You know, it's kind of like the people who say nowadays, they say it to kids and young people, you can be anything you want to be. And I hate, I, I can't stand it when people say that to young people because it's, You can't be anything you want to be. You can be what God wants you to be. And you have to submit to his will and what he wants you to be. And what he wants you to be is totally supernatural. But what he wants you to be is like Christ. And you will be. That is the promise is that you will be when you understand Doctrines like this, when you understand these truths and you trust them, when you trust these truths, you're trusting the Lord. When you trust and understand, you will be like him. But that only happens because he completely changed you at salvation. So look at Romans 6, 3. I get here far too late. Romans 6, 3. So what is the baptism of the Spirit? Well, it's repeated just like it was in Colossians 2 yesterday. It's entrance into Christ and into his death. Romans 6.3 Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Now, baptized means immersed or identified. Uh, and, you know, and however we want to view this because... Is not actually a physical immersion into Christ. Although, I, you know, part of me thinks, well, it kind of is, and, and it's something that we won't really see until we're in heaven, that we'll see how really immersed in him we are. But, you know, here and now, Christ is at the right hand of God. I'm down here, but he indwells me. That's, in a way, an immersion. And so, however you want to view it, but just take the word baptized to mean that you were once separate from each other and now you are one. You were once separate from each other as an unbeliever and now you are one. What he is and what he's done is now you. He did the work, you received the gift, but you are one. One in the same. Doesn't make you a God. It means that what he did and what he is is yours by imputation. So, all of us, he says in Romans 6. Don't you know? It's beautifully set up by Romans 5. Read Romans 5, 12. All of us in Adam have died. We're born 
dead, separate from God. And now, here in chapter 6, such a beautiful book uh, here, Romans, all of us have been baptized into his death. So, the implication is that we died to sin, and so we become convinced. Is the implication this is a blessing. See, when we say, oh, man, God doesn't want me to sin anymore. What a bummer. I want to. And you're missing it. Which, I'm not going to say it's okay. It's just that all of us have missed it at some point. But through uh, study of God's Word again and again, and I, I pray you're of the type that you can understand all of this in a short time. That's the Thessalonians. I am amazed. When we studied the book of Thessalonians, I was like, really? They've only been saved for a few months and Paul's writing all that great stuff about them? After I was saved for a few months, Paul would have never thought to write me a letter like that. I would have gotten like the Corinthian letter. Actually, about 20 years into salvation, I would have got like 20 Corinthian letters saying, Joe, what, what gives, man? What the hell are you doing? But fortunately, by the patience and grace of God, all of us can come to a realization, whether it takes you 30 years to realize it or six months. It's going to take you some time to realize it. But when you realize it, you become convinced not to continue in sin. It's not going to make you sinless, but it is, it's going to make the amount of sin in your life plummet. Why? I died to it. Now, so notice, going back to verse 1, how should we continue in it? Uh, Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Well, it's because just the sentence before this in chapter 5, Paul said when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So they said, he realized that people would say, well, if sin increases, then you get more grace. Why don't I just do more sin and I'll get more grace? So Paul shoots this down. Of course, it would be disastrous. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? He says, may it never be. Basically, he's saying there, hell no. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And you see, and Paul uses this quite a bit. Logic. It's logic that's based upon premises that are divine. If I've died to sin, how should I still live in it? If I went through the tomb with Christ and was buried with Him, and then I came out with Him in a resurrection body, should I say, all right, see you later, Christ. I'm going to run back to the world and live the way I used to live, the way that you delivered me from? Paul says, does that make any sense to you? And so what, and, and what we need to recognize is that God would go to such great lengths because this is the only way to live. And he is the self-existent one. He's the I am. I am that what I am, he said to Moses from the burning bush. I am. Actually, the first word spoken by God in Genesis is the verb to be. He's the I am. And the I am is perfect existence. So when the I am becomes a man in finite limitation and goes through the incredible suffering and mocking and rejection and denial 
and, and all that he went through at the hands of evil, evil people, and all of us are guilty of it all, by the way. Would you have mocked Christ at the cross? I think we all would have. I mean, not as believers now, maybe, but if we were there with them at that situation, we would have. But all of us are guilty. All of us, who have re- we have rejected him. And yet, he stuck with us and he gave us life. And so Paul is saying, well, what, you want to go back to death after he did this for you? And it just shows us how important it is. So then there's our burial. right? Look at, uh, again, 6.3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. Buried. Now, it's, I read over this and... You know, without referring to any commentaries or anything, I just jotting down my own ideas. And as I'm jotting, I, I wrote down, why include burial? I mean, isn't death enough? If he says we died with him, then why include burial? And then it dawned on me as I went looking around. If you're in, go to Mark 15. Look at Mark 15:44. And I'd heard of this hypothesis. I can't remember where I read it. Probably some theology book for school or something. But um, there's a theory that has been around since the 1700s, the 18th, 19th century, that Jesus didn't really die on the cross. He suffered and he passed out. And when they took him down, he looked dead. There was one theory that said Dr. Luke gave him some drugs that made him look dead. I, yeah, anybody can have a theory. That, that one is cockamamie as they come. But anyway, that Christ, there's a few people who would believe this or at least spoke this or taught it that he didn't actually die. They thought he was dead. They put him in the tomb and like the coldness of the tomb, whatever, he woke up. He woke up in the tomb. So like, let me out. And they let him out. It's called a swoon hypothesis. He swooned. He didn't die. He swooned. Uh, why, I only bring that up because notice how the Gospels go into this. We'll look at two. Mark fifteen forty four. Pilate wondered if he was dead by, that, by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him as to whether he was already dead. And ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So Joseph of Arimathea requests the body. Now people can be on the cross for up to three days. This is the same day that Christ was nailed to it. So Pilate wonders, well, Pilate's an experienced soldier. He knows that people can be on the cross for a length of time. He says to the centurion, go see if Jesus is dead. And if he is, give his body to Joseph. And he does. Why do we need to know this? Because Mark and John want us to know that Christ was dead. That there was no, like, even little bit of life in him. Go to John 19. John 19, 32. As this brings up an, an, a wonderful point about the baptism of the Spirit concerning you and your baptism into Christ's death. John 
So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when he saw that he was already dead, he did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out, meaning his blood coagulated. So he had been dead for some time, actually. And he who has, and he who has testified, and his testimony is true. Sorry, I forgot the word seen. That's a big part there. Verse 35 again. And he who has seen has testified. You know how important that is? Because another modern hypothesis is that the Gospels are not actually written by eyewitnesses. A modern, there's a lot of modern hypotheses, but a, a modern hypothesis is that John didn't actually write this. But John did write this. And John was there. John was at the cross. He saw this. He's an eyewitness to it. And he who has seen has testified. And his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Believe what? That he's dead. Well, yeah. So are the other two guys that are on his right and his left. They're dead too. But one of them walked out of a tomb. He didn't go in a little bit dead or a lot dead, completely dead. And so when here we're told that the baptism of the Spirit enters you into his death and burial, the implication is that your burial, right? If you go back to Romans, go back to Romans 6, please. So we'll finish up here. In Romans 6, 3, all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. This burial, why is it mentioned? Because of the finality of the death of your old self. The old self. Did God keep a little? Did he look you over and say, oh, you've got some nice parts to you. Did he look you over and say, you know, there's some characteristics that you have that I could really use. You're not all bad. <laughs> right. He killed it all. The burial means that nothing of the old was saved. And we can see, therefore, especially in light of this doctrine, that in all of these passages, you just have to read a little bit more either before it or after it, in Romans 6, Colossians 2, 1 Corinthians 12, which we're doing tomorrow, and Galatians 3. We did four passages this week on this, on this doctrine. That um, There's warnings not to turn back. Don't go back. Don't go back to the flesh. Don't go back to the world. Don't think that you're, because now we're born again and saved and we're new creatures. Your need... For happiness, for stimulation, for relationships, your need for uh, good things, your need for purpose, your need for occupation, you know, something to do, your need to accomplish, to do things, which comes up next here. Um, all of that are still needs. And yet, God says, don't go back to where you were to fill those needs. Because I killed you to that. You're no longer a part of that world. Now you have to learn to fill your 
desire for joy, stimulation, your desire, the way you did it before, it's no good anymore. Right? A lot of us have learned this. Now I'm born again and saved. I can still live in the old sinful way. It says, you can try. I'm never going to be the same. I've got something from heaven now to stimulate you. Another thing that we need is wisdom. Our minds need to grow. It's one thing that happens when people age and they retire and they shut their minds off. They don't do anything anymore. And your aging goes, like, talk about the slope. The slope becomes uh, steeper because you're not doing anything. I mean, you're not young anymore, so we're not going to be climbing Everest. You know, that's probably off the table. But, you know, there's stuff, there's all kinds of new stuff that we can, as we age, we get good, we get done with one thing, we can move on to another. But what we have is, in us as human beings, the desire to accomplish, to do, to work, to achieve, to create. Isn't our Lord a creator? And... um, You know, all of that now has to come in a new way. And that is the way of the Lord. Not His way. For the people who believe the swoon theory, Christ didn't really die. He just woke up in the tomb and they pulled Him out. Why do they believe that? Why do people present, there's others who present all kinds of theories. Some, some uh, one of the other theories I like is that the disciples thought they saw him. You know, when, he, when they said he was resurrected and we saw him, they saw somebody who looked like Jesus. <laughs> what a terrible theory. You know, hey, that, that's Jesus. You just spent three years with him, not to mention. The gospel writer said he came to them and he showed them the scars and he said, look, put your finger in the nail print. That's not a a, a a wrong identification, you know. That's like impossible. That's even better than a thumbprint on a scan or an eye scan, right? There's only one person on planet Earth who's alive and has a hole through their wrist, and he told you to put your finger in it. And then he said, "Look, put put your hand in the one on my side, just so you think, you know, maybe there's another guy walking around with a hole in his wrist." Okay, but there isn't a guy with a hole here and a hole here and a hole here and two holes down there. So, I am what I am. I am that what I am, right? They don't want to believe the miraculous. And when we don't want to believe that God killed us completely, in other words, God, did you leave something of me, of old me? Is there something left? We don't want to believe the miraculous. We don't want to believe that our old life is not just thrown in the trash heap. It was buried in a tomb. It's never coming back. And that's a miracle. Now, that, even that, up to this point, was not enough for God. Not enough. Not enough for His desire for you. If God made it so that you would never commit one sin again, it wouldn't be enough. I picture us, uh, you know, we're made new and then God makes, you know, erases our brains and, you know, puts in us, uh, I don't know, 
Like you just, just stand in the corner and don't do anything. Don't do or think another thing. Because <laughs> if you're, if you're, all your sins are forgiven, and then God said, all right, from this point on, no more sin. No more sin. I'd be like, well, you have to put me in a coma if I'm going to commit no more sin. Uh, but what God wants for us is not just the death and burial, but also the resurrection. Look at Romans 6, 4. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that, as Christ, so that always refers to a purpose. Say, almost always. And here it does. So that the purpose of our death and burial, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. When it says might walk, he does not at all here refer to like an option. Right? Might means, well, God's like, I'm giving you an option. I hope you take it. <coughs> uh, it really, sh- it, it, I would translate might into should. Uh, but anyway, I don't have time to go into the, the grammar of it. But the, the grammar here speaks of a purpose, and a purpose is a definite will of God. And it always is. The will of God for you, after he crucified you and buried you with Christ, is that you would walk in resurrection. Walk in resurrection. And that is our real life. There's too many Christians who think that there's a church life, a Christian life, and then their real life. And the real life is the family, the kids, the work, the everything else. There's church life and there's real life. There's no such difference. None. We walk in newness of life. Everything we do, we do as citizens of heaven. Everything we do, we do as those who have walked out of a tomb with Christ. Everything we do. Everything we think. Everything. I'll give you one quote. Skip Unger's quote for the sake of time. Lewis Berry Schaefer says in his Systematic Theology concerning this doctrine, Since by the Spirit's baptism, the greatest transformations are wrought in behalf of the believer, it is to be expected that Satan, the enemy of God, will do all within his power to distract, misdirect, and confuse investigation respecting this specific ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he is so right. The, uh, some denominations say, oh, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is speaking in tongues. Some denominations say the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second blessing after salvation when you get you know, some kind of really emotional feeling. Some just ignore it. The, the quote from, um, well, I will use it then. Merrill Unger, this is from an article he wrote on the baptism of the Spirit. The astonishing thing, he says, however, is that a subject of such momentous importance, baptism of the Spirit, with such far-reaching effects upon Christian position and practice, practice should suffer so woefully at the hands of its enemies and friends. And he goes on in the article to state not just those who are enemies of Christ, who try to destroy this truth, but Christians themselves in their churches who are not teaching it. And if, you know, if we don't know that something absolutely miraculous happened to us. 
then it, it just becomes, you know, should I, huh, should I be righteous? Eh, you know, I don't know. I don't feel like it today. No one's watching. No one really cares. Why should I? Why should I put in all the effort? And yet, when you know that you have been completely changed, John said, I baptize you with water for repentance. One who's coming is so much greater than I that I can't even hold his sandals. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The difference between that is incredible. Baptism of the Spirit. The people who left John's water baptism probably had the idea, I would say every one of them, if they truly were repentant, that they were not going to sin again, that they were not going to break the Mosaic Law again. I'm sure that they did. But you see, it's a ritual, it's a water, and it's not permanent. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is so permanent that you're buried. Never to come out again. Never to come out again. Bum, bum, bum. And there's a couple of passages left, but that's good. So uh, tomorrow, 1 Corinthians, and then we'll be done with this doctrine on the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, we could be at it for a long time, but you know what we want? What we want to see from the Gospel of Matthew is that what's coming now with Christ. And after that, we're going to look at Christ's baptism, his very baptism. What's coming with Christ is a whole new life. It's not a remodel of the old. It's a death, burial, and resurrection. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all things that are so from you, uh, that are from you, that are every one of them of grace. We thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy upon us. None of us have deserved anything. And yet you have done to us through Christ something that we could never have imagined. So wonderful that it has to be believed. It's not anything that any man could think of, but only that you could do and plan. Thank you for our Lord. May your words today uh, have their impact on each of us that we may live that wonderful resurrection life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.